This episode of EM Weekly has been archived. The ideas presented by the former host of EM Weekly may not reflect or represent the values of the Readiness Lab and the Doberman Emergency Management Group. Out of respect for the guests who contributed to this episode, it remains available online. EM Weekly is starting right now. And I like to remind them, we went to the moon and back without ICS. So you can say it's better than sliced bread, but it's not the only way to manage complex operations. Hi, and welcome to Ian Weekly. This is your host, Todd DeVoe. And as of this recording this morning, we have over 3,330 downloads. I'm really excited about that. It's a uh, it's showing that our community is growing, and I'm excited about this. And this is definitely uh, with your help. So we've had a lot of interaction on www.emweekly.com, and we've also had on our Facebook and on Twitter and on LinkedIn, all over the place. We have interaction going on with with this podcast. I'm proud that we're interviewing former FEMA administrator under the Obama administration, Craig Fugat. We talked a little bit about ICS, ESFs. Disaster emergency support functions, that is, uh, disaster response in general, and also a lot about volunteer organizations and disaster recovery and Team Rubicon specifically. So uh, I'm excited about having this interview done, and well, let's get into it. So, sir, thank you so much for being here. No, it's my pleasure. So how did you get involved in emergency management from the beginning? Like, what, what brought you to this business? I answered my, my phone. I was lieutenant, just got promoted lieutenant, and... Uh, Alachua County Fire Rescue, and that's uh, North Central Florida. It's our county seat is Gainesville, Florida, home of the University of Florida. And uh, I just made lieutenant, and I got offered uh, three things to uh, to work on on a management project. They wanted all the lieutenants to come into town and, and, and do a couple of weeks downtown, pick up some um, uh, management experience. I was given three projects, and I picked updating the county's disaster plan, and that was in February of 1987, and, and that turned into a much longer reassignment and ultimately became my profession. So what what drew you after you started doing that, you know, secondary or, or collateral duty, as we call it, uh, what drew you to stay in the EM world? Well, I've just found it fascinating, uh, this idea of stepping back and looking at very hard to solve problems and looking at different ways to approach them. And, you know, when I first got started in this, you know, we were still planning for population relocation in, in the event of a nuclear attack. Mm-hmm. Emergency management was still pretty much embryonic, and there were a lot of things that were changing in the profession, uh, most notably a growing awareness at the local and state level of the need to have programs and personnel in place to respond to disasters. And so it was a good time to get started in the program, and uh, it was just something that really fascinated me, and I, and I found that uh, I enjoyed working in it. So doing your work in Florida, obviously the hurricanes were your kind of your big worry, correct? And so how many hurricanes did you respond to, one? And, and then two, how did you start getting people to really take preparedness for that event uh, seriously? I've never really kept track of hurricanes. You know, most notably was the uh, four landfalling hurricanes in 2004. We kept track of those, obviously. Mm-hmm. But, you know, hurricanes, people always think of Florida as a hurricane-prone state, which we are. They also forget we have a lot of other hazards, including 
uh, a drought cycle that produces some of the worst wildfires on the East Coast. Tornado outbreaks, especially during strong El Ninos. Uh, February of 1998, we had a tornado outbreak in Central Florida, killed 42 people. And you don't usually think of Florida as having those kind of uh, tornado impacts. In addition to that, most of our tornadoes, our most deadly tornadoes, are between 11 p.m. and 6 a.m. Wow. So our tornadoes occur at night. They're usually embedded in rain, hard to see. You know, the joke in Florida is we don't we don't uh, chase tornadoes, we run from them. <laughs> and so we had a variety of hazards, and then we also had a fair amount of technological. There was a train derailment out in um, Youngstown, Florida, that was a, carrying chlorine that killed numerous people and was a huge derailment out there. So Florida's history has been primarily, you know, hurricanes, but we have a lot of other hazards. And so it was it was like, how do you get ready for things? Some which you can see coming like a hurricane. And our big issue there is getting people to evacuate. Right to other events that are not the traditional message that you get for, well, it's like, like tornado risk. Most of Florida didn't have outdoor siren systems. Most tornadoes occurred when people were in bed or asleep. So how do you warn people? Yeah. And uh, so we, you know, one of the things we did was help build out the NOAA weather, weather radio network, trying to get more people to do that. We had a much greater success in getting schools to install those. We used you know, state dollars and grant dollars to purchase no other radios for all the public schools. It was always a challenge getting people to take this uh, kind of this mindset that I've lived here all my life. It's never been that bad to when it's that bad, what are you going to do? Are you ready? And particularly, do you know what evacuations on your end? Right. Yeah. There always seems to be that problem with a person who's been there forever. So back with the NOAA uh, aspect, did you, were you part of the, the beginning of the, the storm ready program? Yeah, we had some of the uh, first weather ready communities. In fact, we made that a requirement for all of our counties to become storm ready. This was actually part of an assessment that we did on warning. And I, I said, well, if you become storm ready, I will say that will check the box for all the other things we were doing under the uh, warning assessment of our annual reviews, their plans, particularly for their grant dollars. So that was uh, one of the things that you know we partner with our weather service offices to try to promote. And initially, a lot of people thought we couldn't do it, but ultimately we got most of the counties to get storm ready. In fact, yeah, some of them got, got it. Others started thinking, well, if they can get it, I can get it. Right. But it's, it's, you know, it's just really going back and making sure that you've documented and have demonstrated that you can get warnings from the weather service, multiple paths, and that you can get warnings out to the public and you know, that you have an effective, you know, system. So, you know, we utilize things like Storm Ready in its early days to to kind of push emergency managers at the county and city level to really uh, make sure they have that capability. And by having that assessment, it went a long ways to, uh, you know, it got to be a, a kind of a status symbol of who got the uh, got their sign and their picture out first uh, in an area when they started doing the Storm Ready program. That's great. It, we we kind of did that with the uh, tsunami ready in Orange County, California. We were the first county to be tsunami ready uh, t- entirely. So that was kind of like a big bragging point for for a lot of us on the the coastal communities here. So yeah, I see that the same same type of thing uh, goes down. So to kind of switch gears here, a few years ago, I, I was um, at a conference and I, I happened to sit at your table uh, for, for lunch and we we're kind of having a roundtable conversation. And we started talking about what the role 
of the emergency manager is in general. And I remember you stated that the emergency manager is kind of like a football coach getting everybody ready for, for game day. And then on, on, during the game day, he's kind of on the sidelines. Where did you kind of come up with, with that concept? Because I, I use that all the time now. I teach at, at a Coastline Community College and, and I, I, tell, I tell my students that as well. Uh, and I credit it to you, of course. So that concept, is that something that I mean, obviously that's what it is, but I mean, how, how do you teach that to people and how do you get the people to understand that that's what our role is? Well, I think it starts with how do you build a team? You know, I love Tommy Lee Jones. He's a great actor, but uh, that movie Volcano, where he is the one uh, man emergency operation show goes in the field and solves all the problems, uh, tends to create the idea that emergency managers are the superheroes and we're not. We have to bring a lot of different agencies that on a day-to-day basis uh, normally don't work together and get them to give up some of their autonomy and work as a collective organization to solve problems. And that's not easy to do, particularly when you deal with a lot of very strong will agency heads that are used to solving problems on their own. And as I tell people, I said, you know, if you really want to break down what emergency management does is we 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 exist because government on a day-to-day basis with the normal organization and the org chart can't solve the problems fast enough or manage the event. Because if you can manage the event with the day-to-day organizations, you don't really need emergency management. And I tell people, I said, look, when somebody's house catches on fire and you dial 911 and the fire department responds and puts the fire out, arson investigators come in and say it was an accidental fire. For that family, it's a disaster. But for the community, it's an emergency and the day-to-day organizational structures work. When you have a wildfire racing into an area and you're now having to evacuate block after block and the fire department no longer has the resources, uh, you're having to get the school to open up shelters, you have to bring the Red Cross to do shelter managers, you're having to look at a lot of things simultaneously that no one agency is going to have all the answers or all the capabilities. You need to bring them into a location working together, sitting across from each other, and hopefully not the first night when they're evacuating, they've done this. Right. That they have the confidence you built the team. And the better you are, the less work you do because they're going to be solving problems faster. But I had a secretary of transportation who uh, who said it best about the State Emergency Operations Center. He says, when you walk in here, you choose check your ego and your logo at the door, and you're now part of the state emergency response team. Right. And so I really saw my role as, A, creating that environment that they felt confident to operate in, but two, building the trust between agencies that they could see they could get faster and better by giving up some of their autonomy and maybe letting other agencies do things that they're better at versus you trying to solve all your problems. And uh, probably one of the classic examples was our state veterinarian. We were doing some planning and exercising on animal disease outbreaks. And you only have so many, you know, veterinarians as part of that. And we found that they had adopted the incident command system, uh, which was good, but they had veterinarians doing logistics. And I'm like, "Uh, doctors, let me ask you a question. How many vets do we have? Not enough. I said, well, you know, we've got all these firefighters and people from forestry and a whole lot of other places that are used to working in this command system. They can do your planning. They can do your logistics. What we really need you guys to focus on as the subject matter experts of dealing with this disease, the epidemiology, and what needs to be done. Mm -hmm. But a lot of this other work that is now taking away from that, we can have other agencies do it. And the state veterinarian time was like, you know, we never really thought of it that way. We thought we had to do everything ourselves. And I'm like, no, that's the whole idea of the state emergency response team. The lead agency may change based upon the event, the authorities, but the team as a whole, basically we just rotate the wheel to whoever needs support. 
And then as a collection of agencies, we're just not all showing up, going to the lead agencies. What do you need? Uh, We're there working. We've trained together. We know each other. And we're able to actually get better and faster. But that won't happen if you're not out there practicing. You know, the, the term we play like we practice is a sports analogy is true in emergency management. If that team is not exercising, if they're not being stressed, if they're not putting the situations to basically force them to recognize that the day-to-day business model just won't work anymore and they got to change up, then when the actual event occurs, it's, it's not going to go well. But the better you do that, and the more that team is now no longer a collection of agencies showing up, but a team made up of agencies, your job really in many cases is to set, sit, you know, maybe help set the goals and objectives for the team. But most of the work those agencies are going to be doing, but they're going to be doing it together and getting greater efficiency, greater speed, and maximizing your available resources when you have hardly anything and you've got more need than you got resources. So that really truly becomes like the true unified command that then I remember we had a, a pretty large fire out here and the fire chief comes out and says, well, we're going to we're, we're establish a unified command and I'm the incident commander. And I kind of laughed to myself. I said, I'm not really sure that's how that works, chief, but okay, we'll go with it. So, I mean, I, and I know through the lessons learned and everything that we're trying to get better at this, but do you think that we're doing a better job now than we did in the past with the unified command or do we still have a long way to go well we have a lot of people saying they're a unified command but that's not what it really you know i see them doing an example would be that fire chief you know if that fire is that bad they got their hands full why do they want to do traffic control and route people all they really should have to say is as part of unified command this is the area we're going to try to stop the fire these are the areas we need to evacuate turn to the law enforcement and it says, you got that. And in a unified command, they got it. And now they're running that piece of that response. Mm-hmm. And the fire chief can now focus on fighting the fire. But that you know, law enforcement agency is going to have to make decisions that they're not going to be able to go back to that fire chief every time, nor should they if it's not germane to the fire chiefs fighting the fire. And so really it's about dividing that labor with the agencies that have the core competencies and legal authority to act working as one team. That unified command agrees, this is what we're going to do. But unlike traditional, where there's a single incident commander, those individuals are empowered within that unified command to take action to carry out their part of the problem without necessarily having to go back all the time to one person. Only if there are issues that come up that that unified command needs to resolve because there are going to be prioritizations or issues that Mm -hmm. the individual agencies aren't going to be able to manage. But a unified command is really about not one person saying, okay, we're unified and everybody's working for me. (laughs) It's about taking the agencies that many cases have either overlapping or uh, different authorities and bringing them together as a team to solve the problem faster than they would normally working independent of each other or working from different command posts on different sides of the event. Right. I mean, I'm just happy when they co-locate. I think that's a big accomplishment. Yeah, and okay. yeah, we have some issues over here um, on the West Coast, obviously, where we have, you know, county fire going into state fire area, going into national fire, you know, national forestry areas. And so there is a lot of uh, crossover for sure. Uh, and I think that was like one of those issues that was associated with, with that. The last few years, we've been really pushing out the, the concept and, and the practice of the incident management teams and bringing in disciplines from all over the place. What do you think of, of that concept and, and the new the new rule of push for the IMTs to be to be out there? I think it's one of the best force multipliers we have, particularly um, a lot of incident management teams are hazard specific. You know, these 
originally came out of the forestry teams uh, to augment during serious wildfires and be able to deploy uh, management teams to go in and manage that. But let's talk about EOCs. Very few jurisdictions, including a lot of states, and that I've been floored in that uh, category when I was state director, has all the people and resources to run 24-hour operations for you know days in a row. And at the local level, even our large jurisdictions were, were hard-pressed to staff all the positions they needed when they were running 24-hour operations. And our rural communities, our rural counties, just wasn't even possible. They usually had maybe one or two people, and everybody else was collateral duties or volunteers, and they always had a shortfall. So we had began in Florida building EOC-specific incident management teams made up of the non-impacted counties and city emergency managers. And that proved very successful in the 04 uh, hurricanes. It proved very successful as we began using the Emergency Management Assistance Compact, or EMAC, supporting Mississippi. And we sent teams over to some of the hardest-hit Gulf Coast counties. And, you know, showing up with a nine-person team that was self-contained, had communications, and could walk in and either provide immediate backup or, in some cases, relief to people that had been working nonstop as Katrina had, you know, from the evacuation through landfall, is a tremendous force multiplier. The other part of that is it's some of the best training people will ever get being able to deploy to somebody else's disaster Mm -hmm. and learn from that and bring that home. So I always tell, you know, elected officials and, and city mayors and, and county managers that, you know, don't think of this as you, you know, you're losing people to go help somebody else, that they're going to come back with more experience and knowledge that will benefit your community far in excess of any training they'll ever get. So I'm a big proponent If people ask, you know, for your assistance, you should always try to go. And by putting teams together ahead of time, it a helps mutually support each other, but uh, and, and county operations and city EOC operations, except for the largest jurisdictions, it becomes a tremendous pool of personnel that can come in and augment or relieve uh, local or state staff that uh, in some cases are actually impacted by the disasters themselves and hadn't even had a chance to go home and check on their family or their homes. Right. Yeah, that is kind of... Uh... I I really like the idea that we're using that over here um, in, in some form uh, on the West Coast now, and and uh, I do think I agree with you that it's uh, it's important for for being able to for people to learn too. You know, I'm, I mean to to be able to get out to some of those larger events when you don't have them every day. You know, here on the West Coast specifically, you know, getting to some of the, like the larger events that are on the on the East Coast, I, I think sometimes that uh, helps out. We're gonna take a quick break. When we come back, we're gonna I want to ask you about the concept of the emergency support functions. Are you ready for the unthinkable? Call our friends at High Speed TAC Med. They provide custom emergency planning and training that saves lives. With years of experience in law enforcement, search and rescue, responding to, and managing large-scale incidents, HSTM will evaluate and prepare written plans, training sessions, drills, and debriefs, leaving you with the necessary tools and experience that can save lives. Call HSTM today to discuss your specific needs and the staff at High Speed TAC Med will help ensure that you're ready and are in complete compliance. Call High Speed TAC Med today at 805-419-0024. Again, that's 
419-0024. The friendly staff at HSTM is standing by. Bring it out bodies now. Get someone to the back as soon as you can. Rescue personnel. I got at least three to seven hit. Emergencies happen. Whether they're related to medical emergencies, threats of physical violence, weather related, or other. One of the most difficult things during an emergency is to find help and quickly and efficiently communicate with all parties, regardless of whether you're an administrator, law enforcement, or the end user. With Titan HST, we help distort time by creating high-tech yet simple-to-use mobile-based applications that connect you with the people who can help you. At Titan HST, we believe in the power of people. Hi, this is Todd DeVoe from EM Weekly. If your company is in the emergency management and response space, EM Weekly is a place for you to advertise. Each week, we bring in experts in emergency management, response, and leadership from around the world, and they're here to share their best practices. Our listeners are eager to learn about new products and ideas, so this is the space for you. For more information, please contact Brian at brian at emweekly.com. Welcome back from the break. So before we went to the break, I was mentioned that we're going to talk about the emergency support functions and, and what exactly that is and, and how that comes and, and some of the controversy and using that term lately between uh, how that works in the EOC and that some jurisdictions and some states aren't really embracing the ESF. So sir, the emergency support functions, why isn't that being embraced by more states? Well, some are, they, they don't see how it fits in the incident command system, and they're what I call the, the ICS purist, and so uh, they don't think it has a place, but all of the emergency support function is is grouping agencies over common functions, and it is not unusual to find that different agencies all have overlapping responsibilities. So let's take on the federal government side. Who has the greatest number of hospitals in the federal government? Yeah. Yeah. So if you're talking health and medical, but you're basically going only through health and human services, you just left almost all of the hospital capacity that you have to augment civilian and local responses in a pandemic or any other type of of mass casualty event. Mm -hmm. So the idea was you take all of the agencies that have a role in public health and public health emergencies, including veterinarians. And you put them all together in one functional area with a lead agency versus under the ICS system, if you don't use ESFs, you're having to go to every one of them independently. Right. So if, you're, if your state, if your agencies, if your legislature has done a rational job of assigning responsibilities and you don't have duplicate or overlapping or multiple agencies performing similar functions, that may work. But I'm from Florida where every, basically every cabinet agency and just about every department head had their own law enforcement. So when we needed to coordinate law enforcement and we were getting, you know, from the sheriffs and the police chiefs, these requests, it was like, well, who gets it? Highway Patrol, Fish and Wildlife, uh, Florida Department of Law Enforcement, Motor Compliance Carrier, uh, even the lottery had criminal investigators. (laughs) So we just said, well, let's just put them all in one group. We, uh, Florida Department of Law Enforcement became the lead agency. We added the uh, Florida Sheriff's Association, Florida Police Chiefs, and National Guard was their backup. Hmm. So if any law enforcement-related mission came in, we didn't have to go run down an agency. They were all in one room working as one team, determining what the best allocation of resources. We did the same thing for search and rescue, and that's where Fish and Wildlife and our, our structure 
local firefighters actually blended in because the uh, the uh, wildlife folks had boats and helicopters and, and could get into areas that most anybody else couldn't get on the rural area, but also on barrier islands during hurricane impacts. Right. And the urban search and rescue teams would actually partner up with them. And it was not uncommon for us to have a fish and wildlife uh, boat operator taking urban search and rescue teams out the barrier islands and post-hurricane environments uh, doing search and rescue operations. So the idea of the ESS was, hey, if every if, if you only had one agency doing something, eh, maybe. But if you looked at what we do in disasters and you started grouping your agencies around those functions versus dealing with them as a collection of agencies, it gave you more efficiency. It also meant that if a public health issue came up, we just gave it the health and medical. It could be anything from, you know, an assisted living facility needs evacuating to they're running out of diesel fuel for a hospital. It was like anything that said medical, they went there and then they knew who else among those functions could support them. So if that they needed diesel, they didn't go out and order diesel. They passed that to the function. In our case, that was resource ESF-7, uh, who had state contracts for all of our fuel suppliers that could then get fuel routed to that hospital. But it was more of an organization and kind of kind of was interesting to me as you know the span of control is it was really breaking down what we did not who we are and then grouping all of the different agencies that had capability around the things that we are likely required to do in a disaster versus trying to individually task and sort and triage between agencies who's best fit for the problem yeah it seems to be like some of the the Again, controversy, for lack of a better term, comes in the concept of of an ICS. And then when we move that into uh, the Emergency Operations Center, sometimes there's a loss in the translation of of who does what. And I've worked with some people in the past who, who tried to do tactics from the EOC and, and I had to, you know, kind of say, no, that's not during a drill. Thank God um, that, no, this is not how we do it. We, you know, this is more a, a, of a policy issues up here. And it seems like an ESF would really kind of, kind of fix those communication issues. Do you believe that? Or is that, am I off base on that? It worked for us. Florida adopted emergency support functions right after Hurricane Andrew. They were in the original FEMA response plan, and it was still a draft and being piloted about the time Andrew happened. And in Florida, we adopted them. They made sense, and it gave us a way to take a lot of agencies who had overlapping or duplicate efforts and put them into the same grouping. Uh, would lead and support and clearly define those roles and responsibilities. The thing about the incident command system, and I, I've been in the fire service, I've been using it since, you know, the you know, 80s when this was really starting to move out across the country. Mm-hmm. And I remember when we were still, you know, debating whether it was going to be fire ground command or incident command. And my observation is whenever you try to make an event fit the system you're using, you got a problem. I'm much more agnostic about ICS and much more flexible in how it can adapt to solve problems. But I've seen people so rigid that they will literally hold fast to the ICS doctrine, even though it is obviously not working with a lot of different agencies. Mm. And I like to remind them, we went to the moon and back without ICS. And you can say it's better than sliced bread, but it's not the only way to manage complex operations. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, that's so true. Uh, you know, I was, I was working with a small agency that realistically they're trying to operate from, from an EOC and they didn't have 
enough manpower or, or staffing in the EOC because they're so small that they had to have people out in the field. And I kind of suggested to to go to you know a, a management team uh, you know type of uh, of of uh, structure, more like a field ICS type thing. And and they were losing their mind because they just couldn't get their arm, their head around the fact that they didn't have an, an emergency operations center uh, running. It just they're just too small. I mean, so there is there is that that needs to be the flexibility. Uh, what term that I learned when I was uh, serving as a corpsman of the Marine Corps is Semper Gumby, and uh, that's why yeah. I tried to, yeah, you know, don't be well, so rigid. And the thing about, you know, there's always this debate about are they EOCs or are they uh, multi-agency coordination centers, and I try to differentiate. I said the EOC is where the elected authority and who is authorized to execute that authority in an emergency operates and sets up the policies and priorities. And I try to remind people, I said, look, um, doesn't matter how high up you're in the organization, almost all of the emergency authorities that are granted by state legislation, local legislation, or federal law are invested in the elected leadership, not right. the appointed leadership. And it's important that people understand that you know part of the role of that EOC is where that elected leadership exercises their authorities. I know a lot of people in the business would just assume they wouldn't exercise anything uh, <laughs> if they emergency and get out of the way. Right. But that's not what they are supposed to do. That is, you know, there's a reason the law entrusts them with those authorities and how they delegate and execute that. But that is where they are going to operate from. They will actually establish policy. It goes much further than just multi, you know, just just coordinating across multiple agencies and resources, feeding into a single or maybe multiple incident command post. It's really how the community sets the policies, makes the priorities, uh, decisions that only the elected leadership can really make, particularly uh, declaring the emergency, some of the fiscal issues, requesting assistance, because ultimately they are the legal authorities and they are accountable to the citizens for that response. And that EOC is where... You know, part of that responsibility is executed. Yeah, I mean, I know in, in California, I think it's seven days that we have before um, we can do things without bringing it to the city council. And we try to do it before, you know, in, in a good way. We try to get it to them prior to make sure that they, they're on board with what we're doing. And we try to make sure that we have a policy room working and functioning just like they w- we would um, the in any other room in the EOC so that they're up to date and kept up to date. And so they're making uh, wise decisions. And that's kind of what, how I feel my role as an emergency manager is just to make sure that our elected officials do have the right up to information to make the to make the best decisions and, and to counsel them in that way. So I do I do agree with that one hundred percent. So let's uh, change um, speed here a little bit. So what are you doing now that you're no longer uh, over in in, in uh, Washington? I'm still an emergency manager. Uh, <laughs> everybody assumed that I was retired. I'm like, well, I'm a little bit too young to retire. I tell people now what I do is I work on projects for people I want to work with and projects that interest me. Hmm. I have engagements with different companies. I set up my little LLC, mainly as a, a contracting vehicle for other companies. But I work as an advocate for different people. Uh, and a lot of these were issues I was talking about before I ever you know, left FEMA and left uh, government service. And so there, you know, there's people out there that want me to engage to help them with the messaging and, and how to communicate and make sure people understand the importance. So I'm working with, you know, folks like the National Association of Broadcasters. Cool. I'm a senior advisor to a couple of groups where they bring me in to meet with their folks. And, um, you know, it's, it's 
it's not much different than what I was doing before I left. It just, I, I tell people, instead of having one boss and one paycheck, I got multiple bosses, some of which actually pay. <laughs> you know, part of this was I wanted to come home. I wanted to, to work on things that interest me. And I wanted to take a step back. I spent so much time looking at how you respond better and focusing on that, that I wanted to take a step back and go, why are we having to respond so hard to such big events? And start asking questions that I now have the luxury and time to be able to ask, such as, why are we building in areas that are high risk and then are somewhat surprised when disasters happen right. and it overwhelms the system? Right. Uh, you know, I, I keep telling people, every time you tell me that it was an act of God, I say, quit blaming God. He didn't tell you to build there that way. Right. And if you look at climate change, you look at disruptive uh, weather events that are that are leading our, our, our disasters, uh, whether it's the, the boom-bust cycle of drought, wildfires, and the instant flooding, mudslides. Uh, most recently, we had the fatalities in um, Arizona the other day from burn scar, which flash flooding and debris flow that killed uh, children. But building in areas along coastal communities or into the interface area, and building in the interface area with homes that have combustible materials making up the primary surface of the structure. Right. And people are surprised when they burn up in a wildfire. It's not as if we don't know how to build, but for some reason, we seem to have collective amnesia at the local level when somebody comes in and wants to build or develop that, oh, I lived here all my life. It's never that bad. That's just going to make those homes you know, unaffordable. That's just more bureaucratic red tape. Problem is we're writing so many checks at the federal level to pay for those decisions that we have actually price risk so low that a lot of local governments don't even take steps to minimize in the future because if it's ever that bad, somebody else will pay. Yeah. And um, yeah, I point out people like Governor Brown has taken steps within the state you know, on the wildfire situation, looking at mitigation and how to fund that with state dollars and looking at you know things that has historically been you know, stuff people didn't want to touch. It's almost like the third rail to say we shouldn't build a certain way in a certain place. He's been willing to take that stand going, we cannot sustain our wildfire risk if we don't change how we're building. And where we're building, there's just not enough firefighters or enough money to keep putting out all the fires. Uh, we see similar things here on the East Coast where we continue to get development in coastal areas. Part of that subsidized through the National Flood Insurance Program, which currently is $25 billion in debt. Right. And so I'm asking questions. We're up for reauthorization of the flood insurance bill this year, and it's not going to be easy. We have a lot of built homes uh, in areas that are extremely vulnerable that, quite honestly, if we're not providing a, a subsidized product to those folks, they get priced out of their homes. Right. And I'm not sure that's a good idea. But I'm also pretty sure we should not be subsidizing new construction. And so I'd like them to just take and do one thing. And that is when they pass the reauthorization and put a clause in there that says the National Flood Insurance Program cannot sell insurance to new construction. Let the private sector insure it. And if right. the private sector won't insure it, then why should the taxpayer? <laughs> exactly. Exactly. I, I lived on Long Island for, for a bit when I was a kid, and uh, we had a, a road. It's called Dune Road. It's um, over in the Hamptons. That would get every year we get you know hurricane um, you know blow over from that and we'd lose a home or two over there and the road would get covered and it got to the point to where they just said yep you we're gonna let you keep the houses there we're not gonna let you rebuild and and or if you do you're gonna be you know on your own on that and yeah let the let the people you know let the private insurance companies uh do that because yeah you're right we're, we're just it's it's amazing how much money that we are spending on those homes and people still build there 
I remember there's a story is about a town in Illinois that they actually moved the entire town up on top of a hilltop uh, back in the, I guess it was in the 60s. And, you, you know, that's the mitigation right there. Of, yep, we're going to have a flood. We know it's going to happen. And they turn that floodplain into uh, parks. So, I mean, we know this is happening and making sure that we're doing things things right. Hey, real real quick, what do you think of, of the new uh, wave of uh, disaster response or disaster volunteer groups such as like Team Rubicon? There, you know, this is something that um, I encourage. I continue to see groups that that emerge out of failure, and that you know, Team Rubicon does several things. It brings in veterans, and uh, there's been a lot written about post-traumatic stress syndrome, and I think it's to the point where everybody thinks a veteran automatically must have post-traumatic stress syndrome. <laughs> but in a lot of the research, what they found is when veterans return from overseas. One of the things that helped them integrate society and adjust is to give them purpose. And having gone from a combat tour of duty to coming back stateside and working a, a job, many of them missed that sense of, of being able to give themselves uh, to support others. And so Team Rubicon actually does several things. One, it harnesses a lot of creative talents and energies, but also becomes a very healthy outlet for for veterans coming back to be able to continue what, in many cases, if you asked them, you know, of all the things you could do, you know, when you get back, what do you want to do? And outside of staying in the military, it was helping people in their time of need. Yeah. So you'll have groups emerge. Some of them, like Team Rubicon, will become larger, more organized. Others will be ad hoc at the time of an event. But uh, I try to caution people who say that, uh, you know, we got to be careful with those folks because they're not trained or, you know, they may do more harm or, you know, we look at the public as a liability. I'm going, if you can be picky, it's not that bad. <laughs> um, I'm at the point where I'm telling people that our fastest response is neighbors helping neighbors. Right. And we have got to quit looking at the public as a liability and really see them as a resource because the bigger the disaster, the more likely they will be the first responders they're going to do more good and rather than uh, you know taking the approach of well they're not trained they're going to do too much harm they need to wait for the professionals I'm like well that actually is not working out very well in the shootings because we now have people so afraid to try to stop bleeding that they're not sure what to do that their response is not to do anything and we're seeing people bleed to death and so it's really about re-engaging the public right and so you're going to have volunteer groups that emerge you're going to have volunteer groups that come out of uh, areas where they saw a need they were able to meet it some of them will go away um others like team rubicon will grow right but um that's the nature of the of the business anytime we have failure in response and a group steps in and is able to meet that need we create a new capability yeah i'm i'm a big proponent of our community emergency response teams and also team rubicon for that matter uh, i think those organizations like that do so much good and you're absolutely right i think i, I read a statistic one time i don't remember where i got it from so i don't want to quote it but it was something around around 90 percent of all rescues and they're talking about even day-to-day rescues are done by the layperson until uh, public, until the, the professional rescuers can get there. So if going with that statistic, if you think about large events, kind of like a Katrina or Sandy for that matter, it's going to be those uh, public or, public service organizations that are organized like Team Rubicon that's going to be able to come in and have a greater impact on our communities um, than bringing all the uh, the, 
rescuers in, especially in the recovery aspect of it. I tell my students that recovery, I think, is one of the hardest things to do because after all the lights and sirens go away and the media goes away, recovery still has to happen. And that's why I think recovery plans are, are something that we really need to, to take a look at. I saw where John Bell Edwards, uh, we were working with him in the floods this past year. They had so many homes flooded. And the first thing you got to do in a flooded home is get get them mocked out, get the sheetrock and everything else out that got wet to control the mold. And there just wasn't, you know, there just wasn't enough people in volunteer groups from all across the country. A lot of them church groups planned trips to go in and help muck out homes. And relatively quickly, we were able to see the results of that and getting homes ready for rebuilding much faster than they would have without them. And, you know, it's again, sometimes it's just identifying a need and communicating that and volunteer groups will mobilize, respond. And as we saw in Louisiana, the majority of homes that got mucked out, uh, we either neighbors helping neighbors or a lot of church groups helping out people that needed help getting their homes. Uh, and some of those groups came from all over the country. They just weren't for their local folks helping. They were coming from across the country. Yep. That's the best part about, uh, you know, in, in my, in, in my humble opinion about uh, being here in America is that we, we have neighbors that love to help each other and even though we kind of think that uh we're not that uh, altruistic i think sometimes that we we really are um sir one last question before i let you go if you would recommend uh, a book or a publication to somebody who's getting who's new into emergency management or wants to be an emergency manager what would that be the unthinkable by amanda ripley i agree with you 100 percent. great book well i think what it does is is you read the book you understand why it's so important to exercise and train before disaster and that you have to plan for not what you expect day to day but for literally events that are just hard to fathom and she has many stories in there from 9-11 and how people reacted in the towers and the plane crash and she backs it up with a lot of research about uh, plane crashes, police shootings, and how the more we train, the more we develop the muscle memory, the better we are able to deal with the things we expected, more importantly, the things we never did. There is uh, a lot of documentation, and I've seen this in operation centers, where you know, for too many emergency managers, the, 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 you know, the inside story for us is your first big disaster is your first big disaster, and people are oftentimes paralyzed. Mm-hmm. And that's why it's so important to exercise, not to what your comfort level is or what the history of your events, but to really exercise against the things that they may be unlikely, but if they occur, are going to take your system down if you're not prepared for it. Right. And part of it is that mental ability to shift from this will never happen to, well, if it does, what do we do first? And if you can get just that far in the discussion and an exercise that if it did happen, what would be the first priorities? What would be the things you do and you thought through that? You've already improved your ability to manage uh, large-scale disaster. And that book gives you a lot of insights into why that happens. Uh, there's a lot of rigor in her research. But the basic premise is uh, we play like we practice. Mm-hmm. And if we're always practicing the scrimmages around the things we're good at, when the disaster doesn't play by our, our rules, we flounder. <laughs> and um, that book gives excellent examples of how some cases people were seen as almost bizarrely taken with what they needed to be prepared for, yet on 9-11 that saved lives. Right. The fact that they were that, that they had turned something so extraordinary into something so routine 
such as evacuating a building in a high rise from a variety of threats versus those companies that didn't practice that, didn't do it unannounced, always knew when the fire alarms were going to be sounded and basically looked at that as a break to go get something or go take a smoke break. The difference in those companies' philosophies in some cases meant who got out of the tower, who did. It's amazing. Yeah, I got to, I had the honor of uh, seeing her speak a couple of times, and she's an amazing speaker too. And and the book is is great. Well, one last question: um, If anybody wanted to get a hold of you, how would they do that? Uh, they can get me at Craig dot Craigfugate dot com. No, it's Craig at Craigfugate dot com. I got to remember that one. And I'm also on Twitter. It's W Craig Fugate. Uh, so I'm on LinkedIn. Got Facebook. Uh, got email. Got Twitter. Uh, so I'm pretty well covered that way. All right. Well, and we'll put all those uh, contact information uh, down in the uh, show notes as well. Well, again, sir, thank you so much for uh, for taking time out of your day. And I know you're busy um, to, to talk to, to me and to and to talk to Ian Weekly is much appreciated. And I'd love to have you on again. Sure. We'll pick another topic in another day. 